0: Over the last few years, event professionals have seen a lot of changes and challenges that are going to have a lasting effect on the industry. Welcome to Event Horizons, where we go behind the scenes with event professionals to keep our finger on the pulse of the exciting and ever-changing events industry. I'm Nolan Ether.
1: And I'm Olivia Van Curen. Today, we're talking with Mahogany Jones, owner and founder of Event Specialists. Mahogany and her team work with Fortune 500 companies and trade associations to produce engaging event experiences.
0: Mahogany and her team of experts handle everything involved with the execution of an event, including strategic planning, tech implementation, speaker training, post event analytics, and more.
1: If you could tell us more about yourself, um, event specialists, your business, and kind of who you serve and you know what kinds of events you help bring to life.
2: So, Mahogany Jones, founder of Event Specialists, we're based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and I always say that we're based in Canada because for whatever reason, people think I'm based in the States, but it is not where we originated from. We primarily serve the corporate and medical association spaces, um, but we are also very fortunate, I say, we have the privilege of producing events for philanthropic organizations and a lot of um, health education organizations. So I feel like we're also doing some good work behind the scenes and being able to do events that we actually want to produce. Been operating since 2004 because I couldn't find a job for myself. So I opened a company and here we are.
1: How big is your team? How many people do you have on the team?
2: We are roughly seven. And then we also have a a group of independent contractors. Okay.
1: Awesome.
0: Well, today, I think we want to focus on some of the advantages of kind of smaller niche events throughout the year. We know that the event landscape is changing and has continued to change over the past few years. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on some of the advantages around some of those smaller events throughout the year versus larger scale. And what are some of the benefits for uh, attendees for those smaller events?
2: 100%. That's actually one of my favorite topics, and I say that because I feel like the micro event is coming back, and I feel like the pandemic also helped us to to bring micro events back to the conversation, whereas before it almost seemed like we were limiting something by saying we we're going to host something small. I personally am a firm believer in what I call a micro event or small events because I feel like it allows you to maximize your audience, maximize your give, and also maximize the experience. Um, I was an early adopter of hybrid events, and I always felt like the in-person experience could be a small, intimate, elevated VIP experience, um, also known as the hub and spoke that we're seeing come back which um, allows you to have a different pop-up style event as part of one. But it allows you to curate an experience, make something work for a a specific audience, but allow it to work well for them. Another key industry that I feel like it works really well in is the mastermind community. So we do have the opportunity to produce for different um, entrepreneurial organizations and they produce what we would call more of a mastermind style event which is a curated experience again deemed normally for like 10 to 24 people which you would wouldn't always think of it as an event but when done well you're creating an experience just like anything else but one that can actually maximize dollars maximize return maximize kind of the takeaways that you're actually getting from the event as well
0: that's very cool do you, do you um typically hold those hybrid events as you know concurrently where you have both your virtual and your in-person audiences there at the same time and how what is the virtual side of the, that those events look like because uh, I imagine the in-person stuff is much more intimate and seems very I feel cool. like
2: we're shifting a little bit Um prior to the pandemic it was very easy to say our hybrids were produced in a format that was one and one. So you had the in-person audience at the same time as the virtual audience. I feel like we're now moving towards more of hybrid and modality versus simultaneous um, happening of the event, both in-person and online. My preference for um, the online audience when I'm looking at like the virtual side of a hybrid is really something that is interactive, interactive. Um, and meant for them. Like we don't want the virtual to be an afterthought. And I feel like even pre-pandemic and even to now, I feel like virtual is often almost like, oh, we don't want to miss out on an opportunity. So we're going to add a virtual component versus designing with that in mind. For me, for the virtual side to work well, it has to go in tandem. So when you think of it from a sporting event standpoint, I feel like that's my favorite example to give. You don't think later, oh, maybe we should record and broadcast this hockey game we're already recording and broadcasting for the hockey game to be on TV, just like we are for the in-person audience. Like we're not, we're duplicating efforts in a sense, but we're still creating something that's unique for each of each of them without leaving anyone behind.
1: For sure. I think that's a, a common challenge with virtual and especially in a hybrid setting is making sure that it's an equitable experience, right? Like your virtual attendees feel like I was thought of and This was designed for me rather than, you know, let's just stream it and, you know, have very few uh, engagement and networking opportunities. So that's great. When you're just watching a
2: webinar, if it is only the broadcast. Right. Exactly.
1: (laughs) And so when you're, you know, planning these smaller events, where do you pull inspiration from? Are you looking at, you know, maybe past survey results for a specific client? Are you looking at social, their their social engagement, attendee feedback. Where do you kind of get the idea um, and get inspiration to create a niche event?
0: Chat GPT. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Chat GPT, definitely. Um, I feel like it's a mix of or a combination of different elements. Um, I feel like survey results aren't always depending on how they're curated and created, they don't always give the best results. That are actually valuable to designing a future experience. A lot of times it's reference to what has happened here, not necessarily what you want to um, make work better. As much as we say, what would you like to see next time? As long if you're not if you're not organizing your survey to work for you, then obviously you won't get what you need. But survey results definitely are a good spot to see. You know, did they feel like they were left out? Did they feel like they wanted more one-on-one connection? What kind of sessions did they resonate most with? A lot of things that we f- I feel like we miss out on is having a look at the content. So if we lead with content, we always say content is king, but yet we don't actually look at it. But if we look at the survey results or look at um, where your attendees enjoyed most of the content, I feel like that becomes like your bread and butter for how you can design the future experience or even like that small, um, I'll call it a VIP experience. That can elevate later on. So you can take a portion of what you do well or a portion of what your audience is already looking for and create it into a VIP style experience.
1: Do you have any examples of content that you've used and kind of of turned into a smaller, more intimate event?
2: I know there was a lot of, I worked in different association worlds for a while And one of the associations was a medical association that was hosting a lot of like their three day events. And what they were seeing is that there's one in particular was like a law update for this uh, medical conference and The we were still in a time where we were recording all of the content and sending out the DVDs later. Um, But what they saw is that we weren't really watching those DVDs. They weren't really doing much with that content. But what they were able to see from the most received content would be the amount of downloads that came from this one sort of update that was made available during the event. Based on that one update, they were able to start hosting a luncheon. Around that one specific topic. It was a prime example, and it's a case study that I've used for a very long time. Um, but it's a prime example of, sh- of looking at what you're doing, seeing what you do really well, take that and create a new experience from it. Another example is something that you see a little bit more regularly, which would be like an entrepreneurial style event. This person is a coach, owns a business that happens to be a coaching business. And what they did was create an event around their core coaching offering so they gave everyone a taste of that offering but instead of off like i remember even the the conversation being very vivid with well i have a book i'd like to do a book launch i have this event that i really feel like i should be producing for 200 people and my comment to this one person um who happened to be the ceo and and coach but they were they're not a I don't want to say not a people person because that doesn't sound right, but they were more introverted. And to them, the thought of hosting an event for 200 people just caused severe anxiety. But she was told and it was, you know, that drum of you're going to get business if you host an event. Oh, wow. And that's when I recommended to her to look at the program that she offers, take the most received content, which is usually the execution phase for them when a brand like bringing it to life. And that became the focus of her in-person event. So she created a curated experience. You only had to have 12 people. You increased the price so you were still able to charge and make that ROI. But then you also didn't put yourself on a stage in front of 200 people, which would have made it horrific for yourself to even host and then do something that works for you.
0: I'm curious, what are some of the um, kind of common use cases, especially you were saying that you work mostly with corporate and kind of healthcare associations what are the use cases that make these smaller niche events kind of a, a good approach and what are the attendees looking for or you know, what kind of gets them to show up um, for those types of smaller niche events, especially in those industries?
2: To be fair, some industries, especially in the medical space, you have no choice but to get your credits. So I feel like you you have an engaged audience that makes it a little bit easier to target. But what I will say, it's coming down to targeted approaches. So it's more of current trends, current updates. Um, One thing the pandemic has allowed us to do was remind everyone that you don't have to always plan for, you know, as much as we like to plan 18 to 24 months before an event happens. But it also showed us that we can do things a little bit more in real time. So I don't know if you remember that trend of having everyone curate content and bring it together or the hot topics that you would leave to the last minute. I find those types of sessions work really well for a small experience because you're designing directly with your audience in mind.
1: Have you, um, you know, put on? a more intimate event that you thought executed networking really well between attendees and then also from maybe the attendees and the speaker or the panel? Um, Any examples or best practices that you've seen in your events or maybe an event that you've attended?
2: One event that I actually, um, I attended the event first. I feel like that's something that we should also do as well um, as planners and producers is going to events to see kind of what's happening and then take away what you would like to apply to yours. So one event that I attended, um, they did a really great job as at maximizing their speakers and then creating a really niche um, kind of upsell, we'll say. For that event, in that uh, you could pay for a, like a VIP ticket to the event and then get a dinner with the speakers. So they had like three or four speakers, and we're actually seeing it in quite a few events um, now. But that becomes an experience on their, its own, but it has such tangible takeaways because it's a close, close, again, close, closed, intimate setting, 12 to 24 people. And then you get the um, the brain trust of your speakers and a chance to ask your own questions around a fancy dinner, should you choose to have it as a dinner or however you do set up that experience.
0: You were talking about going and attending some of these events. Like what are some of the coolest ones you've been to or some of the biggest takeaways you were talking about, you know, stealing their best ideas. Um, Mm. What are some of the coolest ideas you've seen or things you've replicated? You know
2: what? I will have to say the last couple of years um, I've been really trying to, we'll say rip off and duplicate. I know there's a nicer way to say it, but um, (laughs) are some of the pop-up experiences, all of these like immersive experience style events, I feel like do do it really well. They do audience engagement really well. They do feeding off their audience and designing with the audience in mind. Something that I feel like we forget as planners and producers. And it's no fault to anyone. Like I feel like we're all overworked, just like any industry. And sometimes it's hard to apply what we're what we're seeing and what we're learning. But my family, we just took the children to Stranger Things immersive experience in Toronto.
0: Oh, and
2: wow. As much as I do not watch the show, but the children watch the show, so I booked said experience for them. From the time you register, and this will be a blog post, I'm sure, but from the time we registered for the event till we finished and left the event space, they stayed in contact with us. So the journey began from the time you registered, which I feel like is often an afterthought in the event space. But that invitation is key to getting all of the things, setting the tone, setting the expectations. That also helps you get great scores at the end and also (laughs) reminds you that you'll do the survey and give a great score. But that invitation was excellent. Then the reminders and the know before you go also included tips and tricks on what you could wear, what to expect where you should park so that it's not as long of a line. Did you upgrade to VIP experience? Because we see a higher number of registrants already. So again, I upgraded to VIP, so said children wouldn't have to wait in line. Get to the experience and the actors were already on. So even from waiting in the queue to when the event experience actually began, they were already involving the audience. They were already involving the attendees. I mean, my 12-year-old was in shock when the person in the lab coat came over and was looking and said, were you here before? And then in the event experience, my child's picture comes up and says, you are going to be on team, whatever, as part of the experience. And then it continues through the whole whole time. So, That's so cool. I will say, we can borrow a page from the playbook of immersive experiences.
0: What what kinds of ideas or how would you repackage that if you're an event professional listening to this that's saying, oh my gosh, like I'm not Netflix, I'm not Stranger Things? Like, what are the aspects that you can take away? I know you talked about like the communication throughout the journey. Um, what are things that are tangible that they can do even if they don't have, you know, the budget of Netflix and, and the creativity even of, of Stranger Things?
2: To me, communication was one. Um, hit the nail on the head. Communication we preach from day one. I will say we are in an era where you have to over-communicate. You need to over-communicate to make sure that your expectations are understood and that the experience that you're delivering is understood. So communication is definitely one. I know our team works on a series of three to seven. So there's always three to seven comms that go for an invitation to when you get to the event. Um, communication, absolutely. Another thing I would say is honestly, customer journey. I feel like we have forgotten what customer journey design can and should look like and that is everything and every touch point that your attendee is going to have so think of again that invitation what will it be like to receive it and how can you marry that with the experience that they're going to walk into i know it's easier said if you're thinking of something like a stranger things experience or even a birthday party for that matter but if we think from a corporate perspective think of how you want your sales team to feel when they walk in that invitation should be just as important to them as it is if you're going external to your organization. When they walk into the event, what is it that you want them to feel? What music should be playing? What colors are in the room? What sounds, smells, all of those kinds of things? And then also right down to the venue that you choose. If you lead with a theme and a mission statement and your obviously your goals and objectives, it'll allow you to tie all of those things for your customer journey together so that it becomes a unified experience versus a piecemealed experience, which I feel like we often end up doing to try to appease everyone. You start designing, well, this is what marketing wants for invitations and for the the actual registration page. This is what the team would like to see and C-Suite wants to see this at the event. So we end up doing logo soup instead of involving our sponsors and activating them in a way that works for everyone and then the takeaway something that i feel like every event is still missing we send we, we ask everyone to complete a survey but there is no additional journey after that so how do we continue that conversation so that we're no longer
1: happening and then forgotten yeah that's all that's all great you know thinking about attendance and this you know rush back to in person i think there's an excitement but there's also um, maybe a little bit of hesitation just because we have and had virtual experiences for so long now since the pandemic. Can you share some strategies for boosting attendance and actually getting people in the door and at these events? Are there any tips you can share especially like we you know you were talking about registration like are there any things that planners can introduce early and you know send to attendees early on to really get them excited to want to come to an event like that?
2: The hard part is um, is the reality of the economy, to be fair we're seeing registrations come a lot later. We used to be able to say that 80/20 rule and then 70/30 for those who RSVP, those who will actually come. We're seeing um a massive decline in early registrations and a massive uptick, I guess, in the registrations that are coming in the like the last week. And I say that from watching a lot of events have very little registration, and then 14 days before their event be double capacity. So we're, we're definitely in that space. That being said, um, I will say, focused on attendee expectations and what they're looking to gain from that event, leading with that is a great way to sell tickets. Another great way is to utilize your audience and utilize them to help share and what I mean by that is we're starting to see more micro-influencers share content, um, use your own audience as a way to draw attendance. Um, you see that with tools like Snowball, if you're familiar with them. They actually empower the audience to share. So with that is written, pre-written content that they can share, but it's not paying our super influencers to, to share and post. But yet we're actually using, um, again, our audience, those who will register. We also run it for staff campaigns. We have staff invite their audiences to attend and really use what's there versus going to an outside source.
1: Do you have any examples of businesses kind of using that user generated content to boost excitement for smaller events?
2: Hmm. I won't really say they're super small, but if I look at something like Event Tech Live, which is a show I'm looking forward to actually that's happening in Vegas coming up soon. Um, in first time in North America, but what I feel like they do really well is that they empower us both as exhibitors, speakers, and attendees to share the content. Um, and then it's trackable. Then we have stats, so we can actually use it as ROI and as a planner, I always need the data so that I can justify the spend and justify why we're doing things. But, um, I feel like those shows, I see it a little bit more. Um, I'm trying to think probably because I I produce events that are a little bit bigger than some of these smaller ones. I'm trying to think of some valid examples for a smaller group that could use. I'll have to come back to yeah. that. Yeah, totally fine.
0: I'm curious um, what you think about sponsors and sponsorship for some of these smaller events. Do they – do they see the value? How do you maybe have to position it differently, or are they excited about the fact that it's more intimate? Just curious what those conversations look like.
2: That is one of my favorite topics, and I say that because I feel like sponsorship is something that is definitely an art, um, but should be approached from a collaborative from a collaborative way versus how we've always positioned it. Um, I've always been an advocate for going against the bronze, silver, gold, platinum. Way of presenting sponsorship. Absolutely, it works. Don't get me wrong. Um, But even in my early days, I remember presenting a sponsor use case for an event to see how it could play out. And what I did for that was allow the sponsors to help drive the content. So you're starting to see a little bit more of the choose your own adventure. But I want to challenge people to take it a little bit further and that we're not going to ask them to choose their own adventure. What we're going to do is ask them to create with us, to co-create something that works for both. When it comes to a smaller experience, what I actually positioned um, years ago for one of my own events, I feel like I used to produce events just so I could test these strategies. But one of them, I designed a table and it was literally I would like you to take a seat at our table. And I only have eight chairs at my table and I match the dollar value that I, that I wanted to get for the event. So we used to do for this one event, they used to do a lot of like the in-kind and then this $500 tier, not to discredit anyone for giving $500, but with $500, it meant we had to bring in $2,500 mm-hmm. speakers. Instead, I built a table and those 20 speakers now became two of the chairs. And each chair was at that value so that I was able to actually bring in more money with my eight chairs than I was with the package that was previously designed. And because I was inviting them to take a seat at the table, I actually didn't have to send a prospectus. I didn't have to do all of those things. But what I did say is this is how much it will cost you to join our table. And with that brings a conversation, your ability to help design the content. And you are no longer an afterthought, but part of the process. And then that allowed us to design cooler content to be fair, because the sponsors, instead of saying, well, we're going to sponsor a keynote, they actually brought ideas to the table. What is going to help this soda brand who has a certain shade of red elevate their experience? So we were able to bring them to the table, up light the room red. And all of a sudden, they're now in this experience without being as blatant as just having their logo somewhere. So it brings conversation and things like that.
1: So how do you think differently about small in-person events versus small virtual events? And how do you decide when, which approach is the right one for a specific event? Like what, what are the differences there? How do you plan them differently?
0: I'm curious too how many how often are you doing small virtual events now that we're we're back in person.
2: I know we're a bit of an anomaly cuz we're about still 50, 50 50 virtual events and um in person. Part of me believes that we're still virtual for half of the events because we we are in the medical space where um, a lot of the audience is also a certain demographic that will need to care for their, their health or not that others don't have to care for their health, but there's more risk for them traveling. Um, there's more illness. There's more tiredness. There's a lot of those things to consider too. And having a virtual event is allowing us to deliver more content, less time, um, and then also more breaks, to be fair. To decide between the two, I often look at like the goals and objectives and how we can accomplish them. So as a Canadian, I feel like um, a lot of our Canadian events stayed virtual a lot longer just due to our regulations and things like that. And we still have sort of that fear that lives there. But our other side of our business is American-based. So they actually didn't have the same level of fear uh, when it came to coming back to in-person. But what I did find works, I don't want to say works the best, but works for us, is more looking at again the goals and objectives can it be accomplished virtually because not everything can be accomplished in both sides and I say that true interaction or learning takeaways yes tech can work for you but not it doesn't always work depending on your setting and then also how can you like can you get your speakers can you get your people things like that so really starting to understand I guess demographics and then budget. So if I'm also realistic, um, as much as we're rushing back to in person and we want to see it happen, I mean, the tried and true numbers that we used to look at, we're now looking at a twenty to forty percent increase in price across the board, especially in things like AV and food. I mean, if you go to the grocery store and look at the cost of an avocado, that can truly tell you where you're starting to see the inflation. Um, but sometimes that also dictates how we decide. To, to activate an event.
0: We were talking to um, Miguel a few weeks ago in the first episode uh, from from Skift meetings, and he was talking about some of the kind of mid-tier, or mid-sized events, feel like they've kind of gone away during the pandemic and Absolutely. maybe aren't coming back, and you've got these flagship events, is how, how do you think some of those mid-tier events are thinking about this? Is the niche smaller niche events, a good option for them is, you know, what would you, what would you recommend for some of those organizers that own some of those mid-tier events that are struggling right now?
2: I would say definitely the mid-tier definitely would work for um, like a smaller micro style event. But I, I mean, I hate to be the, I don't want to be the negative person, but sometimes a marketing campaign can serve the same results as your event. So maybe we prioritize that budget. Um, one other thing that I feel like we really haven't scratched the surface on is co-locating of events. So this has been presented as an option in many in many industries. If you think of it, even as simple as the Canadian Association, Canadian Medical Association and an American Medical Association coming together to host one event, that's shared venue costs, that's shared um, food costs, that's shared marketing costs, even because you're now just going to promote to both lists, but it allows you to do more with less. And instead of the, um, we'll, we'll say, let's take the ego out of a lot of these things and then have a look at it. That's a little bit more practical.
0: Is that something you're encouraging folks to do? Or is that something you're seeing?
2: We are seeing it a little yeah. bit more. Um, we definitely saw it when you couldn't get venues so that it became mm. Well, we normally host our annual conference in August, but we can't find space. But we do know that our counterpart is still hosting in August. Let us borrow the space. Gotcha. So we are seeing it a little bit more. It is something that I've been preaching as well as fellow industry professionals for a long time, especially when it comes to continuity and trying to get younger generation easier to see it in like an association world. Where you're trying to get um, people in a certain industry like doctors and physicians and you have to start with the children so you have to get them into school to become doctors so how do you get that to work bring the student association in with the adult association and now we co-locate
1: I have a question about, you know, doing more with less aside from the obvious of just having fewer people at an event. um, Are there any other creative ways where event professionals can do more with less while still providing a really enriching and um, immersive experience? Any like tips or tricks that you've experienced or you've seen other professionals um, implement where they're just, you know, maybe not putting as many resources into X or, you know, trying to save money in, in a certain way while still delivering an awesome event experience.
2: One thing that I will say, so smaller experiences, um, oftentimes, I mean, I'm going to use like corporate, we'll call them like the corporate in-house events. And I say that because sales meetings and all of those things, a lot of times, and I say this, I'm thinking of a certain financial organization in particular who hosts an event external. And it's, their user conference more or less for, for their attendees and that becomes like their flagship and they spend a lot of money on all the keynotes and all of that. Then we look at their town hall, which technically in my mind would be um, more of a hub and spoke event because they host for their different offices. But what they, what I feel like they forget is that they don't put the same thought and intention into the content that's there. And they immediately think we have to do the giveaways, the the swag bags, the hosting of them plus their spouse. We have to go whatever, do whatever that looks like for them. For me, the best bang for their buck would be to pay said keynote that you are going to have at your flagship event to record something for your staff or your sales team so that there becomes something just as empowering and in impactful for them, less cost because they're already paid to do the other session or the other conference, but you can then borrow the talent to be able to enhance what you're already doing. Think more holistically versus the one-offs and see how you can maximize throughout your, your event cycle, if it's possible. I'm not saying it's always doable, but just being mindful of how you could record sound bites for something later Or think of how you can do user-generated content. I mean, as much as we say user-generated content, like why not empower your audience to have those conversations? Like the unconference is back. The conversation style events without an agenda is also back. Putting a facilitator in a room to facilitate conversation and networking can be a valid event think of a hackathon think of all of these things. There are events that can be hosted in a small way that have big impact without the overheads and budget and thought that we feel like we have to put into everything. Just be intentional in the design.
0: I love how you're, it seems like you're seeing trends kind of coming back into vogue um, for whatever reason. I'm curious, you've talked about, um, a few different ones. What have we left out? What What are some of the things that you think we're seeing uh, that that are coming back, and maybe why? Like, why do you think that is? It is it you know the return to in person? Is it lower budgets? Is it you know whatever? What are the What are the What are the things that are coming back around? Um, and for folks who haven't maybe been in the industry and maybe haven't seen this, it might be the first time. Tell us a little bit about what those things are and
2: hmm. that kind of stuff. We actually had this conversation earlier today. Um, as funny as that is, we actually just had this conversation in, in what is coming back. Almost like what was cool is now, or I guess what was, wasn't was cool is now coming back. I mean, we did talk about live tweeting and things like that, um, which is very funny. But what we are seeing is something as simple as the QR code. QR codes are back in full force, which mm-hmm. used to be like, oh, we don't know how to use QR codes. That's not technology. Even the event apps turned into, as you know, being able to host full-blown virtual events. Now that we don't have to necessarily host full-blown virtual events, we still have to be able to use the technology. So why not maximize what has been built for us over the last few years and use that to um to enhance our experiences?
1: Can you talk about how to incorporate or how you're seeing how you're seeing um especially for you know these smaller niche events getting sponsors involved as early as possible and maximizing the value for them um how does that what does that look like in a smaller um you know in person or virtual niche event
2: absolutely start with core values i feel like that's a, one of those things that's kind of underutilized in our prospectus or even prospecting of sponsors is finding organizations that align with yours i mean I feel like we're all naturally taught to go for big brands and go for big brands and big dollars because that will elevate our event and give us bigger budgets. But if we look at things from a more of a value proposition and allowing us to tie our mission statements together, I feel like it's a bit of an easier sell, but then you also get um, longer term relationships because you're building something together. So if we're looking at sponsorship for smaller events, um, We have to stop selling vanity metrics. And I feel like if we stop selling, you're going to have access to 2,000 people because we know full well that you're not speaking to 2,000 people. But if we sell it from a perspective of you are going to meet 24 people who are aligned with your mission statement and aligned with your vision, it's a little bit easier of a sell. Even if you think of a small event and like a micro, um, a micro event, even in the, the numbers of like 50 to 100, because a lot of organizations, it is that 50 to 100 is your small micro style event, but you're tying it to a sponsor that is allowing them to... Meet exactly who they want to meet, set times for them to actually engage with the audience. It's more than just thanking a sponsor that will give them ROI, but it's also important to ask your sponsors and not be afraid to ask the sponsors of how they have to meet their ROI. So I feel like we often tell them that we have to raise $100,000 for this event and we would like you to give us half why not ask them what their mandate is with the dollars that they have to spend and see how we can maximize that experience? Because maybe what they're looking to do is offer education. Maybe it's a a win-win in that we want to use your software because we want it in front of more people, but I would love the feedback from those people. So maybe there's something that we can do a little bit more that's directly tied to everyone's KPIs. Like I feel like as an event professional, I'm also guilty of it. I look at my KPIs and my numbers that I have to reach in sales targets versus, well, what do they have to reach? Because we also know that they have a spend cap as well. So.
0: Yeah. On a, So, outside of the sponsors on more of the internal stakeholder side, do you have to think about ROI differently there? And, like, what, how do you position these smaller events? Like, what are they good for? And how do you have to sort of level expectations for what ROI might look like or what success might look like for a smaller and more niche event?
2: I know it's a little bit easier for sometimes, I feel like, for corporate events when, um, the event is tied to a user conference, to an experience, to a brand. Versus uh, when we look at associations, when the event dollars are tied to salaries. So sometimes I find it's a little bit hard um, to understand, like to understand that differentiation and that our all of our budgets aren't the same. Um, but understanding what you're looking to accomplish, designing what the the core metrics and what success looks like outside of official numbers, and then presenting that as a plan. Like I feel like everyone in every event should have what I call an event business plan um, and truly outline what does success look like. Is it conversion metrics? Is it brand awareness? I mean, brand awareness, obviously, as we know, can't be defined by a specific number, but how can we make it work for us? What does the C-suite need to see? Is it retention? Is it renewed membership? Is it net new members? Is it net new registrations? Like, let's start looking a little bit more creatively at what um, those KPIs can be and how it can turn into a proper metric versus saying, well, we want to get 2000 people registered. Because that 2000 people registered doesn't necessarily mean you've hit any kind of target except your 2000 people.
0: So what kinds of goals could a client come to you with that would make you think smaller niche event is perfect? Like what are they good for?
2: For me, I feel like it's a lot of brand awareness. One, I I feel like brand awareness events. um, They definitely work well. Um, They can also be rinsed and repeat a lot more um, Mm. in your smaller style events. I personally like a good update. I think that's also like a, a user-generated content. So whether that be um, our latest CRM update, clearly I'm a, (laughs) I like the tech stuff, (laughs) but like a CRM update or like some kind of software update, I feel like those types of events can be done really well. Like even just think of Apple launches for what something, um, I mean, yes, they're a little bit more grandiose, but something that's a little bit intimate.
1: And speaking of technology, we are a a technology company. So are there any, you know, features in an event app, an event platform that you think serve smaller events really well?
2: 100%. If I can please see a profile. I mean, I know that sounds very simple, but a true attendee profile on your app makes sense. Um, Being able to add additional fields and things like that so that we can see who we're talking to and connecting with um, to make it happen. I find that works well. Um, Also I want to say usability um, because I feel like we went through this whole, I want to say like HTML5, like I don't know (laughs) when it was like the big thing that we needed everything to work on a, a mobile website and be mobile friendly, but having things work across platform. I know everything is technically deemed to work better on Chrome. We understand that, but I want it to be able to work on the devices. If we're saying we have a native app, I would prefer to have a native app and have it work the state with the same functionality that the website would have. Cause I feel like we're, I don't want to, I don't want to speak to the engineering side of things because I am not an engineer by all means, but I feel like when we're building in piecemeal and not all functionality is available, that becomes a little bit of a stressor from a planner's perspective and that I then have to learn how to communicate what your experience will be like for the mobile version versus the web version versus the app version, like just so that we're able to, to make it simple. But profiles are a big one. Communicating between each other as well, like being able to send a message is a big one.
0: When you work with clients, especially if it's over a long you know, extended period of time where they're going to have... Perhaps they have a flagship event that is in-person. They have smaller virtual events. They have some of these smaller niche uh, in-person events. And each of those use cases need slightly different technical capabilities. How do you think about event technology? Are you constantly, like, are you going back and re-choosing or, like, figuring out what the goals are and choosing a different uh, event technology platform every time? Are you recommending something that's more all-in-one and flexible that people can, you know, kind of host all of their events, no matter what, what is your thinking on that? And what is your coaching for your, your clients in that?
2: Absolutely. Um, I personally um, prefer an all-in-one solution and something that is um, scalable with you versus the piecemeal of, well, we're going to have a small event that we don't feel like we need an app for. So we just won't have one. Um, But then we'll, you know, send everyone a Zoom link and hope that they all communicate together versus putting it into a strategy. I mean, oftentimes we're not, we don't always have the luxury of being able to choose a solution that would allow us to plan for a year, but we tend to know our event cycle. So approaching it from an event cycle perspective, instead of looking at it as the one-off events, most event departments, and I say this nicely possible, know that they're going to host an annual event and they're going to host three board meetings and they're going to host um, a leadership retreat. So to be fair, you know those things are happening. So let's look at it holistically and put a strategy in place so that you can have a technology that scales with you, um, that you can use the parts that you would like to use, but then also make it a little bit more um, convenient. I mean, everyone has content, I shouldn't say everyone, but most people have content housed somewhere. Why are we putting it in so many different places where we can continuously add to our platforms and extend our license so that we have access to things longer than the two days that the event is happening for and come back to it.
1: So as we wrap up, I know we're almost to time. Um, Can you just talk about what you're most excited about um, in terms of the events industry, whether that's niche events or not? What's exciting you the most and uh, where can our audience learn more about you?
2: Hmm. What am I most excited about? I feel like, um, to be honest with you, like, yes, we're still seeing a lot of like layoffs, acquisitions and things like that. But over the last year, I will honestly say the collaboration that I'm starting to see has given, given me hope. Like, yes, there's a lot of, we're still seeing a lot of dim and grim in the event space, but What I am starting to see more of the rise of is the rise of everyone understanding that you can have your own secret sauce and then also collaborate with others. So we're seeing tools start to collaborate. We're seeing technologies start to collaborate and buy what uh, one side does really well to enhance the other without um, undermining each other. We're also seeing the rise of collaborative efforts from different organizations. I mean, I myself have partnered with another event agency to augment what we're doing and really having a look at um, how we can sit in our own lanes and then do things well. I mean, my favorite example of that is registration isn't done really well everywhere, but most of our tools tend to integrate with others who tend to do registration really well. For example, streaming also was something that not everyone did really well but tools now have purchased said tools that will allow it to make our, our lives a lot easier so
0: that's awesome and where can our audience find you yeah are you on all the different social platforms your website what's the best place to, to look you up
2: absolutely i am mahogany jones on all social platforms i say that i'm not on TikTok. um but on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and then eventspecialist.ca. Well,
1: Hagenie, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it was a pleasure to get to know you more and you just provided so many great insights um, on this really exciting topic. And I think we're going to, you know, like you're saying, likely see more of these micro uh, niche events. So thank you so much for joining. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.
0: I mean, one thing I'll say is I, I, and this just shows that I'm kind of green when it comes to uh, the event professional space and you know the terminology and things like that. I'm definitely familiar with the term hub and spoke, obviously, and as a content person, it's kind of the same kind of idea as like a topic model or topic cluster model, a hub and spoke model, people use that in content. I haven't heard event professionals, at least not just in the time that I've uh, worked with WebEx events and in the event space, refer to that, but it sounds like Mahogany believes that that's going to come kind of back in vogue. And I assume um, the idea of a hub and spoke model is sort of what we've been talking about around the large in-person flagship events with the smaller events um, it's kind of scattered throughout the year. Maybe what's what's evolved and changed is the prevalence of virtual events and kind of the balance or mix of events and things like that. But I thought that was that was interesting. You know, it sounds like they've been down this road before in different ways, um, and that it used to be kind of a popular approach. And then now um, they're rethinking, kind of going back to adopting that kind of approach now that virtual is such a, a large piece of the pie.
1: Yeah, I think that that's interesting. And, you know, like we've been saying, in person events are coming back, but it's great to leverage things like, you know, smaller virtual events or more intimate in person events to stay in front of an audience year round. And that's something that both Miguel, honestly, all of our guests this season have talked about is staying in front of your audience beyond just your event and then maybe your, your immediate follow-up, like keeping that communication open because there are a lot of events going on, um, especially as in-person events come back. And so it's so important to um, maintain that communication and really dig into your data and like Mahogany reference, like looking at, you know, the content within your event and, and identifying what is really resonating with attendees, what are people engaging with, and then using that to either create new content, repurpose content, or, you know, potentially create um, a a niche event, either in person or virtual, um, to really hone in on that topic and, you know, potentially partner with great subject matter experts who can provide more insights and go a little bit more in-depth with attendees.
0: Yeah, and I know when we talked about kind of the year-round engagement or 365 you know uh, day event cycle, those types of ideas, um, that sometimes we lean on or talk a lot about the event technology's role in it or the event platform's role in it, and people automatically think about like, oh, well, hybrid events and um, you know, communities and things like that. And I know that there's a lot of pushback and, or, or even just the idea of, you know, tying all of your systems together and having it talk to your CRM. And like, there's this like idea of this vision for what that looks like that we keep hearing over and over is like not really reality. Like there's not a ton of event company based or brand based communities, especially ones that are internal to platforms that are thriving um there's not a lot of event tech platforms even ones who have um you know the ability to integrate with all different kinds of other platforms there's still the the a gap between the data that's being collected and the insights that are being collected in those platforms and then the way that you can then leverage that data to communicate with customers year round and things like that but i don't think that that should um prevent event professionals from re- really leaning into more of just the ideas around that so like a community is a nebulous thing it doesn't have to be a community on a platform or on your event platform like we have that capability that's great and if you can make that work that's awesome but even just meeting customers and prospects and attendees where they are staying in front of them combination of email social media third party um sites like you know like reddit and quora and wherever you're having these conversations telegram groups or whatever that is community
1: yeah absolutely it definitely plays into the idea of doing more with less you know using what you have repurposing that um not starting from scratch necessarily
0: i did love i'm curious what your thoughts were but i did love mahogany's point around you know we keep hearing a lot about like you know the new thing is not the new thing but it's very clear that virtual events are not just an add-on to hybrid events or to you know to in-person events Um, And that specifically, especially when you're talking about like uh, mahogany is big on, Hey, you can do the small niche in-person events, but you can open those up to virtual audiences and get a bigger audience. But then you do need to be thinking about the virtual experience as a, as its own thing and creating it kind of native as a virtual event and making sure that that has its own value. I'm curious what you're thinking about, like the idea of, designing virtual events from the beginning, not being an afterthought.
1: Yeah, I think it's something we've heard from multiple guests of if you're going to have an experience where there's a main in-person component and a virtual experience, you have to think intentionally about how to make that virtual experience compelling and immersive for remote attendees. And it doesn't mean replicating the in-person experience for a virtual audience that likely won't resonate and won't feel as authentic. Yeah, I think it's about rethinking or reimagining maybe the in-person component and then thinking about how that can fit into a virtual format. Again, without replicating it, but you know, thinking about what what do you want your in-person attendees to feel like coming out of your event and how can you translate that and maybe, um, you know, reimagine that to work well in a virtual format. I think that's really, it's a really great point and something that we just keep hearing over and over that that virtual piece has to be thought of, like you said, from the beginning and not as, you know, kind of a a last minute, oh, we'll just, you know, stream the experience and expect them to feel the the excitement and, you know, all those exciting feelings that come along with attending an in-person event, like they probably won't.
0: I think that as the as the as we, we're getting like a clear definition of hybrid and what is and isn't hybrid and what's working and what's not working in a hybrid, I'm starting to let go a little bit, at least for now, of this idea of your virtual attendees needing to be able to communicate directly with and network with in person. Like that's a sticking point that I think is not um something that's, you know, we're getting feedback is not something that's really happening to the degree uh, that people have wanted it to or have thought that it might. Um, and then, so that brings up the idea of like asynchronous events. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. and we're hearing that a lot too, is like that, that's the approach, um, that a lot of folks are taking. And when you look at it that way, you think to yourself, well, how can I plan the best, you know, micro event for in-person, right? These smaller niche events where I have 10 or 12 people and I can have deeper conversations and, um, workshops and things like that. But then be thinking while you're doing that, like, do you want all the time and effort and, um, opportunities that come from that to just end when that event ends and walk away? Or is there an opportunity to capture, you know, clips from that photos from that an interview um, to repurpose some of the content. Right. And it doesn't have to be, Oh my gosh, my virtual audience is getting the same experience at the exact same time as my in-person. And the only way to do that is to stream it. Right. That is putting uh, the virtual attendees as a second class citizen, but If you make a really good and intentional niche in-person event, and then you repurpose it and look at it from more of a content perspective, and then create a virtual event based on the same content, but specifically from the beginning geared towards the virtual audience, it doesn't have to be at the same time. And then you're getting equitable experiences, you're making your content last longer, you're you kind of getting the best of both worlds. You're reaching more people with virtual and you're also getting those deeper relationship pieces from in person. And I do think that when virtual uh, attendees see a a nicely polished or repackaged, you know, video or something from these workshops, that that does add some brand equity that, that they do feel a little bit more of a part of it by seeing some of that and being like, oh, that's really cool. And now I'm getting like the key takeaways from that or a download or whatever, um, versus, oh, they just like set up a camera in the back of the room and they're streaming it. And like, you know, no one can hear me. No one knows I'm here. So that's, a you know, a, another way to, to think about it, I think.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you think about WebEx events are our, our semi-live feature. You can make a, a pre-recorded piece of content look like it's live. Um, and that helps from the planner perspective. There's less risk You've already done it live. You can maybe edit it, polish it up, and from the the virtual side, it's a really polished and and highly produced experience for them, um, which, like you said, can definitely build up that um, that brand equity and and um, make your your virtual attendees feel like they are they were they were thought of and this content was created you know specifically for them.
0: I thought it was really interesting when she was talking about sponsorship, the idea of kind of taking, especially for smaller niche events, taking the approach of, you know, maybe pro- providing a couple of tickets to the sponsor or having them be a, you know, a guest in some way and kind of putting it as like, hey, you get these tickets for this price or you get this, you know, this involvement. And then also, you know, we'll put your logo on this. We'll do these other things. But like, cause we talked about like, what are the reasons why somebody would, you know, a sponsor would want to necessarily sponsor something where there's 12 people, right? And how do they know that those 12 people are going to be relevant to them? Um, but I think the way that she was talking about, like creating these sort of VIP experiences for sponsors and including them in that way, I thought that was compelling.
1: Yeah, I did too. I think we, for events in general um, and, you know, Niche events, we talk a lot about how do we craft a great experience for attendees, which I think is important. But I think she really nailed that. Um, it's about for sponsors creating a great experience for them as well. If you can bring them into the event and have them on site, um, you know, sitting at a table, enjoying a meal, enjoying whatever activation you have, like that is going to make their sponsor experience so much better. Um, and it gives them face time with your attendees too, right? Like if you ensure that. Um, your sponsor, their business goals, and and their mission aligns with the the values and the the missions of your attendees, like they're going to be hopefully fruitful communications and and, uh, networking between those two groups at the event. Um, So yeah, I I like that tip too, like really bringing them into the experience um, rather than just saying, you know, we'll put your logo on the napkins and we'll just leave it there. Like let's bring them into the experience as well. Mahogany made a great and I had never heard of this term before, co-located events. So um, this is something that Miguel had talked about as well as, as in-person events come back, it's, it's becoming harder to secure event spaces. Um, and so if there is potential where maybe one association is, um, you know, looking to host an event and a association that's similar and has a similar mission and values as them, they're hosting an event and they already have. Uh, an event space secured, can you co-locate, can you kind of collaborate and use the same space Um, because your, you know, your values, your audiences are pretty similar. Um, That just helps, you know, reduce cost and kind of that last minute scramble to find an event space when you can kind of just partner up with a similar organization um, to host your event.
0: Yeah. This whole season is about doing more with less. Um, I think that's a great point. We talked, you know, in if you heard season or excuse me, if you heard episode one of this season, you heard Miguel talk about how some of the middle tier or mid sized events have gone away, and that that's not fully shown in the, in the sort of a hundred percent attendance numbers that we're expecting to see this season. Um, so, if you are one of the kind of events impacted by that, or if you're concerned and trying to just save money, it's a great time for partnerships finding other uh vendors and and folks that may just want to do kind of a group event together or at least share the space in some way so i thought that was a a great kind of hack or or, a tip that uh people can hopefully implement if they're trying to get into these types of events
1: yeah she said it's taking the ego out of the event which i thought was clever and a good point
0: yeah it doesn't have to be all you you don't have to be in complete control like it's okay to share Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) yeah exactly sharing is caring.
0: Okay, why don't we just get ready to wrap up? But why don't we talk about, you know, to be selfish for a minute, we have yet another professional. These are not paid, (laughs) paid (laughs) sponsorships or paid guest spots from anybody. We don't, we aren't vetting and making sure everybody is working with, you know, our customers or our platform before inviting them. We're inviting people that we think can add value. But yet again, we have a guest that's coming on the show saying they lean towards all in one event platform of record type of relationships. If they have an ongoing relationship with a customer that they like to teach them, vet a platform, teach them how to use it or help them use it and then stay on that platform if ideal. And to find something that is flexible, that, uh, you know, has all the capabilities that they need and that they are not a big fan, Mahogany said, of piecemealing together a bunch of point solutions. So I feel like we're hearing that now over and over and over again. It seems like we're getting, you know, Obviously, it's qualitative data. um, It's anecdotal data. um, But we are hearing more and more and more that that's the way that everything is going. Consolidation, consolidation, consolidation.
1: Yeah. She had said, you know, gone are the days of sending a meeting link and hope everyone figures it out. Hope everyone, you know, knows how to get in. And, you know, you're getting a a bunch of emails, one-off emails about how to log in. Um, People are craving an experience. And I think that all of our guests have reiterated that a, a true all-in-one event platform really does provide that. Um, it, you know, creates a, a virtual venue for remote attendees, and um, you know, for in-person attendees, just really enhances the experience and you know, streamlines their access to content and networking and engagement and all that that good stuff.
0: Less relationships to manage, less contracts to manage, less integration of integrating the integrations to manage less individual tools to teach people how to use or to learn how to use yourself um just you know from a scalability perspective and especially if you start talking about the you know we talked this this episode is about the small niche events so if we're looking at this 365 day event cycle and you're talking about this mix of events that we keep talking about combinations of virtual and in-person and smaller in-person and all the hybrid and all these different things, depending on what's the best use case for the content or the particular attendees or whatever, um, having a platform that can support all of those different events and then all of the data is feeding into the same platform is just kind of starting to become table stakes, it seems like. Thanks for joining us, Mahogany. Don't forget, y'all, we have tons of free resources for event professionals on our website. Visit socio.event resources to check them out. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another great guest. Until then, I'm Nolan Ether.
1: And I'm Olivia Van Kieren. This podcast is brought to you by WebEx Events, formerly socio. Before you go, be sure to leave a review and follow the show so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk with you next time on Event Horizons.